The knowledge should by now be clear that there exists a structure, occult and hidden, within the state itself. There exists in Italy a secret force parallel to the armed forces composed of civilians and military men to organize a resistance on Italian soil against the Russian army. It is a network of men trained to use communications, arms and explosives. This organization, lacking a Soviet military invasion, took up the task on NATO's behalf of preventing a slip to the left in the political balance of the country. This they did with the assistance of the official secret services, political figures and military forces. Histories of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast, down through all an eternity, the crying of humanity. Tis then when the hurdy-gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Then when the hurdy-gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Hope you had a nice Christmas and New Year and I hope you're ready to join me for another deep dive down another deep rabbit hole. So following on from our concluding episode about the Brabant killers, this time we're going to be exploring Operation Gladio. Now, as I was cutting this episode together, someone sent me a pretty interesting article in The Guardian, and I found the overlap between what's in that and the subject of this episode a pretty funny coincidence. So this is an article dated Friday the 24th of January, headlined, Revealed, the true identity of the leader of an American neo-Nazi terror group. The terror group in question is called The Base, and they get their name from the rough English translation of Al-Qaeda because, of course, they do. I'll just hook you up with a couple of choice quotes from it. So here goes. The Guardian has learned the true identity of the leader and founder of US-based neo-Nazi terror network The Base, which was recently the target of raids by the FBI after an investigation into domestic terrorism uncovered their plans to start a race war. Members of the group stand accused of federal hate crimes, murder plots and firearm offences and have harboured international fugitives in recent months. The base's leader previously operated under the names Norman Spear and Roman Wolf. Members of the network do not know his true identity due to the group's culture of internal secrecy. But The Guardian can reveal that Norman Spear is in fact US-born Ronaldo Nazaro, 46 years old, who has a long history of advertising his services as an intelligence, military and security contractor. He has claimed, under his alias, to have served in Russia and Afghanistan. The revelation of his identity comes after a months-long investigation by The Guardian into Nazaro and the activities of the base. So we have a possible intelligence agent as the head of a Nazi paramilitary group that has been scouting locations throughout the US where it can set up a headquarters to launch a far-right insurgency. Now, I've seen a couple of people arguing that since the FBI uncovered it, this obviously means that if Nazaro actually was a spook, he was acting alone or going off the reservation. But that doesn't really add up because these agencies are involved in 
factional wars with each other all the time. And the CIA and the FBI have a notorious love-hate relationship with each other. So reading on a little further. Nazaro has maintained a decidedly low profile. He has no visible presence on any major social media platforms, no published writings under his own name, put a pin in that, and no profile in local or national media. Beginning in 2009 and until as late as 2019, Nazaro billed himself as an intelligence expert working with various government and military agencies. Nazaro is the principal of a limited liability called Omega Solutions International, a company offering a range of intelligence and security contracting. The firm also has a cage code, which is an administrative requirement for military and government contractors. Materials inspected and sources consulted by The Guardian indicate that Nazaro, a spear, has faced persistent suspicions from current and former members of the group that he is a Fed. The Guardian has discovered that all of the business addresses associated with Nazaro's OSI LLCs are virtual offices. This describes a situation where a second company provides a business address and sometimes meeting rooms and greeting services for businesses who do not wish to maintain their own premises. The addresses are often prestigious. OSI's virtual address locations include Fifth Avenue in Manhattan and K Street in Washington, D.C., an address associated with federal government contracting and lobbying. Now, all this is obviously extremely interesting, and with this being The Guardian in 2020, their natural instinct is to try and pin all this on Russia somehow. But remember how they said that there was no record of him publishing anything under his own name, and how he only began billing himself as an intelligence expert in 2009? Well, Someone was kind enough to link me to an online document called the 1998 Strategic Assessment by the National Defense University. The NDU is basically spook school, and this is from their own website. The NDU educates joint warfighters in critical thinking and the creative application of military power to inform national strategy and globally integrated operations under conditions of disruptive change in order to conduct war. In the strategic assessment book itself, which you can find as a PDF online, in the acknowledgement section, they say this. Special thanks go to James Zacherson, who served as a managing editor, and Ron Nazaro, who conducted background research and produced the graphics. So the head of a neo-Nazi terrorist outfit that is inspired by Al-Qaeda is probably led by an intelligence agent who maybe graduated from spook finishing school. This is definitely a story to keep an eye on and the overlap between the fascist underground and intelligence agencies has extremely interesting and very disturbing resonances with the topic of this episode, which is Operation Gladio. So let's dive in and to begin, we need to go back to Italy in 1990. Now, if you could sum up the country in one word around this time, or at least the general public mood, it would be fatigued. By the start of the 90s, Italy is a country that is staggering under the weight of a mounting number of scandals and endemic corruption issues. Since 1980 alone, Italians have seen the collapse of Banco Ambrosiano and the mysterious death of its chairman, Roberto Calvi, known to the public as God's Banker. Subsequent to this, Ambrosiano's majority shareholder, the Vatican, which is where Calvi got his nickname from, 
is then implicated in a number of money laundering schemes that connect it to the Sicilian Mafia, the international heroin trade, and even the Contras in Nicaragua. We've got the assassination of political power broker and Prime Minister Giulio Andriotti's eyes and ears in Sicily, Salvo Lima, and the exposure of the P2 Masonic Lodge and its VIP membership list. Throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s, Italy was hit by an insane wave of terrorist bombings, murders and kidnappings from the left and the right, each with their own Byzantine conspiracies implicating powerful people in the state. Additionally, in 1979, the Corleone Mafia clan in Sicily starts the Great Mafia War, which is also known as the Matanza or Slaughter. And in the space of two or three years, almost 2,000 gangsters, their families, police, carabinieri, witnesses and civilians are killed. The violence and instability spills across to the mainland where the Neapolitan Camorra and the Calabrian Andrangheta then find themselves embroiled in open conflict as well. By the mid-80s, organised crime has essentially created a state of emergency all over southern Italy. And the government, its back against the wall, launches a crackdown against the mafia groups with mass arrests and maxi trials that subsequently leads to Cosa Nostra launching a bombing campaign on the mainland that even their colleagues in the other mafia organisations feel is overkill. And this, in turn, reveals even more evidence of the levels of collusion between the mafia and the government. So it's safe to say that Italy was not in a good place by the time Andreotti was called before Parliament to discuss the political terrorism that had occurred through the 60s, 70s and 80s. But what he reveals to Parliament ends up shocking even a country as wary and cynical as Italy. He exposes the existence of a secret anti-communist army operating in parallel to the Italian state, which he calls a stay-behind network. He goes on to explain that this network was set up over 40 years before by NATO, the CIA and MI6 to prepare for a Warsaw Pact invasion that would never happen. The name of this secret army in Italy, he says, is Gladio or S.O.D. Agents working for the network are informally known as gladiators. And he also says that the operation is not confined to Italy. The stay-behind networks exist in some form or another under different names in countries all over Europe. The last meeting we know its leadership held took place in Brussels in November of 1990, where the decision was apparently taken to terminate it. In the wake of this, there is a fair amount of consternation and anger and intrigue on the part of the EU and NATO member states at the time. But because NATO adheres to a doctrine of limited trust, um, in addition to the public never being aware of these armies for the better part of 50 years, Gladio was even kept secret for most of the government and military personnel in every country that it existed in, or so we are told. Andriotti tried to roll back on his expose a couple of days later, but by then it was too late. And pretty soon, former Gladio agents were coming forward to fill out the story, and people began digging up arms caches buried all over Italy. Uh, they found crates full of well-maintained machine guns and explosives buried under churches, hidden in secluded forests and meadows. Uh, they even found weapon stashes in places like Austria and Switzerland. And NATO, for its part, categorically denied that Gladio existed, while the CIA stated it could neither confirm nor deny the existence of such operations, which is CIA speak for, yeah, it exists, and no, we aren't going to discuss it.
The British government and security services refused to acknowledge Andriotti's revelations at all, citing national security concerns, which is the Brits' way of also saying, yeah, it exists, and no, we aren't going to talk about it. The EU issued a very sternly worded condemnation of the Stay Behind networks and promised a transparent and detailed inquiry, and then inevitably, nothing happened. Belgium, Italy and Switzerland were the only countries to hold investigations into Gladio and media coverage of them throughout the 90s gradually died away to nothing. There are a number of reasons for this, to my mind. Um, for one thing, in 1990, most Western media outlets were busy selling the first Gulf War and the Gladio story struck a direct blow against their narrative of the US and Europe being bastions of democratic freedom. Their reporters in Italy were mostly interested in hearing what the Italian government had to say about the upcoming invasion of Iraq, the ongoing domestic corruption scandals, and at a push, maybe, the unfolding crisis in Yugoslavia. Uh, perhaps most of all, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the new decade was supposed to herald the arrival of the new Europe, the end of history, the triumph of capitalism over communism. And few journalists had the stomach for chasing a Cold War spook story. I think the mentality was, the war's over, we won. Who wants to go diving back into an era that is already beginning to feel like ancient history? But for Italians who follow deep state politics especially closely, uh, the term over there for it is behindology. Gladio confirmed a great many suspicions they'd had about how their leaders had operated throughout much of the 20th century and offered a new context for periods such as the years of lead. And in the 30 years since Andriotti exposed Gladio, bits and pieces of information skimmed from freedom of information requests, testimonies of former gladiators, and accounts from retired spooks and military staff have allowed academics and researchers to put together a little bit more of the story. We'll probably never know the full extent of Gladio's activities, but we can roughly chart where it came from and how it evolved. As we wade into the dark And we wave goodbye There's no turning back We're going off-road Operation Gladio was a synthesis of different military and intelligence doctrines and tactical ideas that was motivated by the Western power strategic thinking as World War II came to an end. To get a fuller picture of what kind of factors led to its creation, we need to do a little bit of hopping back and forth in time. And to begin with, we need to sideline the idea that the Stay Behind networks were purely a CIA and NATO invention. In fact, the idea of a stay-behind army is one that the British government developed during the 30s when another world war was beginning to look increasingly likely and a Nazi invasion of the UK mainland was a genuine possibility. So the first round of recruits for Britain's domestic stay-behind network came from the Scots Guards. And as with Gladio, these guys buried arms caches all over Britain and disguised as 
Home Guards were expected to function as a resistance movement and roving hit squad. Now, interestingly, the idea for all of this was itself inspired by the British Empire's experience conducting counterinsurgency operations in its colonies through the latter half of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th. In fact, they'd paid particularly close attention to how the IRA operated. Now, as a paramilitary group that was able to conduct ambush and sabotage operations quickly and efficiently before blending back into a very supportive local community, it makes sense that the British state would have been using what they learned there to create their own covert resistance movement. But with the likelihood of a Nazi invasion fading, the Special Operations Executive, um, what's known as Churchill's Secret Army, was created in 1940. They were trained in unorthodox warfare and its agents would parachute into Axis-occupied nations and help coordinate local resistance. They'd set up stay-behind networks, they'd carry out hits and sabotage and things of that nature. The Special Operations Executive eventually expanded to employ 13,000 people and it laid the blueprint for what became Gladio. Now significantly, many of its highest ranking officers and political operators would later become involved in groups like the Le Circle Complex, which is a shadowy private intelligence and foreign policy body that originated in France, but is today mostly dominated by the British. And we'll be talking about Le Circle a lot more in future episodes. At the end of World War II, the American OSS and the British SIS were anticipating the Soviet Union as being the next great threat. And as the Allied armies moved through formerly Axis-occupied regions, they learned pretty quickly that the Nazis and the Italian fascists had also created their own systems of stay-behind networks as they retreated. And the job of these networks, again, was supposed to have been to launch a guerrilla war on the advancing troops as a last-ditch attempt to win the war, or at least force a stalemate through attrition. But many of the highest-ranking officers of these secret squads quickly realised that it was far more profitable to do business with the Americans and the Brits than continue fighting. So while it is true that the Allies arrested scores of Nazis and fascists and put them on trial for all kinds of atrocities and crimes against humanity, it's also fair to say that hundreds, hundreds of dirty deals were cut all over occupied Europe with particularly influential or useful members of the Axis powers. And spearheading this covert bridge building on the Allied side were the British Secret Service and two men in particular who will be talking about a lot in episodes to come, Alan Dulles and James Angleton. We might as well get to know them a little bit here. So Alan Dulles was a diplomat turned lawyer turned intelligence agent and Wall Street ghoul. He was recruited into the OSS at the start of the Second World War and he'd eventually become director of the CIA. He was the epitome of the American WASP a lifelong Republican and scheming power broker who was described by almost everyone who knew him as inscrutable and coldly indifferent to people who he didn't consider useful to his objectives. And with a spymaster like Dulles, so much of his life is a patchwork of his own self-mythology and CIA propaganda that it's kind of hard to know how much of his story to even really take seriously. Uh, for example, he once claimed that while he was part of the US diplomatic service in Vienna, he personally was the one who'd arranged for Lenin to be transported back into Russia in 1917 in order to throw the country 
into further chaos. He's also, inevitably, a major figure in JFK conspiracy law. And in fact, pretty much any major mid-20th century conspiracy in America isn't complete without Alan Dulles appearing at some point. During World War II, Dulles had developed a reputation for undermining the orders of President Roosevelt and much of his time in Europe reads a lot like dark comedy, with him engaging in all manner of high-risk scheming to advance his own agenda and inflate his own bank balance while frantically trying to cover his tracks so that his latest brilliant plan didn't make it back to Washington and land him in trouble. And he would be one of the key figures in the planning and implementation of the secret stay-behind armies. Now, James Angleton was born into the world of intelligence and subterfuge. His dad was an OSS member, and Angleton himself seems to have been groomed for a spy's life from an early age, his enthusiasm for reading and writing poetry notwithstanding. Uh, he was apparently on pretty friendly terms with the likes of T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. And he joined the US Army in 43 and worked out of London for the OSS's counterintelligence X2 unit. And this group was so secretive that it was allowed to operate in complete isolation from the rest of the OSS. And it played pivotal roles in exposing Axis spies all over mainland Britain and Europe. Angleton himself was a star performer. And when he was sent to Rome to whip the X2 unit there into shape, he quickly rose to become head of the entire Italian branch and he cultivated a network of contacts in the Axis just like Dulles did and these would prove a crucial not just for winning the war but for what came afterwards. Angleton was known as an extremely weird, possibly insane guy uh, prone to grandiose glowering statements that seemed designed to play up his image as a shadowy puppet master. Uh, by way of example, one of his most famous quotes is, deception is a state of mind and the mind of the state. Amazing. So as I say, we'll be returning to both of these guys a lot in episodes to come. So we don't need to get too deep into the weeds with them this episode. For now, all you need to bear in mind is that both men were highly capable career intelligence agents born into the ruling elite utterly ruthless and committed to enhancing their own power and status while advancing the interests of American capitalism. And they were absolutely rabid anti-communists. And I do mean rabid. Declassified documents have since revealed that the US recruited upwards of 1,600 military and intelligence staff, scientists, engineers, and technicians, uh, people like Werner von Braun and his V2 rocket scientists, um, all of whom had been crucial to the running of the Nazi machine in Germany. The Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency called this Operation Paperclip. The Gehlen Organization, the intelligence agency that the CIA would establish in their zone of influence in West Germany, was packed with Nazis and Hitlerites. Reinhard Gehlen himself had been head of Nazi intelligence on the Eastern Front. The outfit would become the key component of West Germany's own stay-behind network until its exposure in the mid-50s. Dulles and Angleton repeatedly smuggled high-ranking fascists and war criminals out of Europe, helping them evade trial or else writing them glowing character references to spare them a lengthy sentence. 
when the Allied intelligence agencies weren't funneling Nazis and fascists out of the occupation zones, they were installing them in key positions in security services and governments or supplying them with fake passports and cover stories so that they could become assets. The idea of recruiting Nazis and fascists into the cause of anti-communism was encoded into Gladio from the very beginning. And to understand what was underpinning all of this, you have to remember that the Russian Revolution was still a source of something very close to trauma for a lot of politicians and figures in the military and intelligence establishments of the Anglo world. To these guys, World War II had only ever been a temporary distraction from what they saw as the much bigger threat posed by Soviet communism. The historian, Denner Frank Fleming, says, the Russian Revolution's abolition of the church and landed nobility might have been tolerated and even accepted by the world's conservatives in time, but the nationalization of industry, business, and land, never. The minds of England's conservatives snapped shut during the Russian Revolution and never opened again. Britain and the US had already funded covert armies to fight against the Bolsheviks during the Russian Civil War in a failed effort to overthrow the revolutionary government. That failure drove the West crazy in the following decades. And this informed much of their thinking throughout events like the Spanish Civil War and the Great Depression. Right up to the present day, British and US statecraft is coordinated mostly by people who are products of this Anglo-Saxon patrician mentality. People born into old money, educated privately, who have an ingrained sense that they have like a divine right to rule. So the race was on to strip the corpse of the Reich and to recruit the very best people before the USSR had a chance to. And Germany effectively became ground zero for the Cold War as it was carved into various spheres of influence by the Allies. And while the first round of treaties signed between 1945 and 1950 by Britain, France, the US and a number of other states were immediately concerned with preventing German rearmament, there was general agreement that if there was a third world war, and some say that's what the Cold War was, it would be a titanic conflict between the West and the Soviet Union, and the Warsaw Pact nations would likely invade Western Europe very early in the game. Now, according to Belgium's own investigation in the 1990s, to this end, preparations for what we now know as Gladio were put in place as early as 1948 under the supervision of NATO's predecessor organization, the Western Union, organized by something called the Clandestine Committee. And when the North Atlantic Treaty was signed, MI6 and the CIA created an unorthodox warfare and covert operations section in NATO to become a member of NATO. In fact, it was one of the requirements kind of kept off the books, really but it was one of the requirements that you had to permit the establishment of a stay-behind army in your country. By 1951, Gladio was more or less fully established and being run by the clandestine planning committee out of the NATO Brussels office in a part of the building only accessible to people with the very highest security clearance and absolutely everything about their work was top secret. So let's zero in on Italy for now where we'll drill into the practical function of an organization like Gladio. So with the war over and the communist and socialist guerrilla groups no longer of any strategic use to the allies, it was implicitly accepted by high-ranking allied officers running the show 
that the political left had to be excluded from the post-war planning operations at all costs. It was well known that the Soviets funded many of the bigger socialist movements and political parties in Europe, how much is, of course, still disputed. And so the Allies viewed this influence as poisonous to their strategic aims. And to this end, the OSS coordinated extremely closely with local authorities and organised crime in order to manage Italy's fledgling democracy in a way that was favourable to their interests. A good example of this would be in Sicily. Now, back in the 20s, Mussolini launched a war on the Mafia, which turned out to be kind of overrated. Um, it mostly worked as a PR exercise and a show of force. And while a lot of lower-ranking mobsters were rounded up, many of the higher-level bosses realised that they could escape the purge if they just swore fealty to the new order and continued their racketeering with a much lower profile. These fascist mafiosi infested town councils and mayor's offices all over Western Sicily by the end of the war. And now the forerunner of the CIA was helping them cement their power as the country as a whole transitioned out of fascism. And the mafia would pay back Western intelligence agencies and their friends in the Italian government the best way they knew how. Now, during Italy's post-war economic miracle, uh, class tensions were rising due to the growth of a vibrant trade union movement. And this led to brutal crackdowns coordinated by the mafia and right-wing terror groups, as well as outright massacres of organized peasants committed by people like the so-called last bandit Salvatore Giuliano. And he himself was a mafia patsy. Now, plenty of strike breaking, plenty of union organizers and activists disappearing forever, such as uh, Placido Risotto, who was a peasant and socialist leader, who got marched out of town at gunpoint by a future head of the Corleone family, Luciano Leggio, in 1948, and was never seen again. The Sicilians call these disappearances um, white shotgun murders. Now, not all of this was the direct work of Gladio, but in no way did it conflict with NATO's broader strategic goals. And in fact, it helped the mafia uh, getting closer with the Italian government and with the Western intelligence agencies behind them. Gladio was reliant in large part on organized crime, especially in Italy. There was a period in the 50s and 60s where it seemed like Cosa Nostra's sole purpose was to purge the trade union and socialist movement from Sicily. And various organized crime groups would prove to be a crucial partner to Western intelligence agencies all over Europe as the Cold War progressed. And we'll see this again and again in episodes to come. With their trafficking routes and contacts and their ability to infiltrate state institutions like law enforcement and banking, they'd carve out an extremely profitable niche in the years to come proven to be invaluable tools for dark operations, offering state security services a measure of plausible deniability for especially risky hits. The overlap between gladio, organized crime, and political corruption is so great that it can be very difficult to untangle it all. And in fact, an aborted plot to coup the Italian government in 1970 was planned in close coordination with the Sicilian Mafia, who supplied much of the weaponry and some of the seed funding. Tommaso Buscetta, the famous Mafia Supergrass, said that the coup was only abandoned because Nixon got cold feet when the CIA informed him that the Soviet Union had discovered the plan and deployed warships to the Mediterranean as a deterrent. 
That the CIA felt confident enough to plan operations like this stems from Angleton and Dulles. They had made it their goal to fully involve the CIA in Italian state politics from the get-go. Their first big test came in the 1948 election. Facing the very real prospect of a socialist victory at the polls, the CIA sent out a squad of bagmen carrying suitcases stuffed with cash for their favourite Christian Democrats politicians. They also had agents plant stories in the press smearing communist and socialist candidates. They had pet journalists at radio stations and newspapers broadcasting anti-communist stories around the clock. And they wrote an estimated 10 million campaign letters for the Christian Democrats. They also ploughed around $20 million into the operation as a whole. The effort was successful and it would later be revealed that the CIA so thoroughly infiltrated the Italian system by the 70s that the government's secret service and military appointees had to be first vetted and approved by the US government and the CIA's methods and influence would only grow more sophisticated and insidious as the decades rolled along. Meanwhile, the Stay Behind networks were rolled out all across Europe. And by the 70s, these secret anti-communist paramilitary groups also existed in one form or another in Denmark, Greece, Belgium, France, Turkey, Holland, Norway, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and so on. In fact, the 1967 coup in Greece was a gladio operation and it brought a hardline right-wing government to power. And the original concept of a deep state stems from the collusion between the Turkish government and its own stay-behind networks, counter-guerrilla and the Grey Wolves. Despite being an ostensibly NATO-run network, the CIA even extended its influence to non-NATO countries, uh, persuading governments in those nations to set up similar anti-communist armies as well. And their purpose was supposed to be to fight behind the lines in the event of a communist invasion. But the problem with this is that most experts at the time generally agreed that the West and the USSR engaged in a hot war would result to firing nukes at each other pretty quickly. So why would you bother setting up these intricate resistance armies when you'd presumably be activating them to fight over irradiated ruins? The answer, as ever with these kinds of things, points to pretty cynical motivations on the part of NATO and its associates. Gladio was billed as a resistance network, but it was pretty quickly repurposed as a tool of internal suppression and influence peddling to prevent any socialist or communist government from coming to power. Former officers of counter-guerrilla have at least been more honest in this regard. There was also a lot of money at stake in the form of arms deals and other trading relationships. Gladio was a military and intelligence operation, sure, but this perfectly complements its other objective of cementing business and political links between behind-the-scenes actors, even as many elected governments remain mostly unaware of its existence or claim to be. 
So NATO expected their Gladio agents to be self-sufficient and capable of conducting operations and directing day-to-day -day activities at their own discretion. They were trained by both British and US special forces at bases in the UK, Germany, France, Italy, Canada, and the US. They learned how to hide and maintain weapons stashes, and they received instruction in the art of surveillance and sabotage. As one British special forces officer would later say, we were playing for real. That is, training exercises were designed to be as realistic as possible. Now, we already mentioned the live fire exercise that NATO possibly conducted in Belgium around the time of the Brabant killers crime spree. But some of the other stories I've dug up are possibly even more insane. One has Gladio recruits on a training exercise that required them to plant real dynamite on a London tube train, leave the train to complete its route before retrieving the bomb without being detected. And this is still something that intelligence agencies and special forces do to this day. In 2016, for instance, the CIA had to wheel out their PR guys because they were discovered planting explosives on a fucking school bus in North Virginia, supposedly for canine sniffer dog training. We hope that it was for canine sniffer dog training, let's face it. So not all of the stay behind cells were active at all times. Some of them might go years between operations, while some of them were never activated at all. And during downtime, agents would maintain and inventory the hidden weapons and the intricate communication systems. Uh, they would monitor and file reports on dissidents and others deemed subversive who popped up on their radar. And they would cultivate fruitful links with government and business leaders. Agents were not permitted to reveal anything about their activities to their friends or their families. And they were expected to always be available at a moment's notice. For its part, NATO doesn't seem to have been particularly interested in what the moral cost of a lot of the Gladio Network's activities were or who its agents were recruiting as the Cold War progressed, as long as the recruits were committed anti-communists who knew how to keep a secret. The only hard and fast rule was that under no circumstances were its agents to attack friendly state institutions or representatives. But as is so typical with CIA and MI6 operations, the forces that they thought they could control often ended up spiraling madly off the reservation. In the years to come, to one degree or another, the Gladio cells, staffed by spooks, neo-Nazis and straight-up gangsters, would be involved in multiple false flag terror bombings, assassinations and massacres. At its height, in Italy alone, Gladio would have 15,000 members spread across roughly 620 different cells. And the financial costs of all of this are incalculable. Uh, simply training and arming a single cadre of Gladio agents could cost upwards of $5 million. And that money has to come from somewhere. And inevitably, there are strong suspicions that the CIA partly funded much of Gladio with off-the-books profits generated from its involvement in things like drug trafficking and money laundering. In Italy, Gladio took an extremely active role in the strategy of tension during the years of lead, and during which it attempted to trigger a state of emergency which would discredit the organised left and lead to a right-wing crackdown. 
It also carried out things like the Bologna station bombing in 1980, which killed 85 people, the Piazza Fontana bank bombing in 1969, which killed 17, and the Petiano bombing, which killed three carabinieri and violated the no attacks on state figures rule. The network also maintained close links to other spook outfits like, as we've mentioned, the Propaganda Due organization, which, with a big sigh, I have to remind you, was a rogue Masonic lodge composed of neo-fascist members of the Italian establishment. And they also maintained close ties with another fascist group that, with another big sigh, was actually called Ordine Nuovo, or the New Order. They even allegedly coordinated with their counterparts in the Turkish Grey Wolves in the attempted assassination of Pope John Paul. Now, the CIA still won't officially comment on the Stay Behind Networks. NATO still refuses to discuss anything detailed about them, and almost everything we know comes from retired spooks and soldiers and the Gladio agents themselves. MI6 only offered denials and lies in the wake of Andriotti's revelations, and then, in a textbook wanker's trick so typical of the British secret services, in 1996, they allowed the Imperial War Museum to create a new exhibit called Secret Wars. This was the first time they publicly, if indirectly, admitted to their involvement in the Stay Behind Networks. And it seems to have served as an implicit okay for their agents to tell their stories. Needless to say, nowhere in this installation did the word terrorism once appear. So we've gone long in this episode, friends, and I still haven't covered a tenth of this subject. But we open the show with the words of Vincenzo Vinciguerra, which he was a right-wing terrorist who was a member of Ordine Nuovo. As part of that same statement he gave, which I quoted from at the top of the show, he also said this, The terrorist line was followed by camouflaged people, people belonging to the security apparatus, or those linked to the state apparatus through rapport or collaboration, I say that every single outrage fitted into a single organised matrix. It somehow um, perfectly suits the dark Wonderland-style vibe of the Gladio story that a fascist psycho like Vinci Guerra has offered a more honest and direct assessment of the stay-behind networks than NATO, the CIA, or MI6. An Italian parliamentarian had this to say in 1990. This Europe will have no future if it is not founded on truth, on the full transparency of its institutions in regard to the dark plots against democracy that have turned upside down the history, even in recent times, of many European states. Nearly 30 years after the end of the Cold War, that full transparency still doesn't exist. And the matrix that was described earlier of business and political relationships developed during the years of Gladio undoubtedly still exists, even if the operation itself does not. The Le Circle Complex is just one example of many. So that about wraps up Operation Gladio, or at least a brief introduction to what it was and how it functioned. Next time, we are still hanging out in Italy, but we're going to zero in on the years of lead and the brain-melting web of conspiracy around the Red Brigades and the kidnapping and assassination of Aldo Moro. 
please like and subscribe. Urge friends and loved ones to bunker up and dive into the spook show with you. Don't get captured. And as ever, thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. Here comes a roly-poly man and he's singing songs of love. Roly-poly, roly-poly.